Hello and welcome to Podiatrics Pediatric Podcasts. Today we're going to be talking about about rhabdomyolysis. So this is what today's podcast is on. So the first thing I'm going to mention is what is rhabdomyolysis. So rhabdomyolysis, if you break it down, the rhabdo means striated and I think actually comes from Greek meaning rod. So striated, myo for muscle and lysis for breakdown. So we're working with breakdown of striated muscle today. So different types of muscle, isn't there? There's um, smooth muscle, skeletal muscle and cardiac muscle. Today, we're going to be focusing on skeletal muscle, sometimes called striated muscle. This is voluntary muscle. So if you want to um, bend your arm or flex your bicep or extend your arm and flex your tricep, these are under voluntary control. So they tend to be um, quite long, cylindrical shaped muscles. And remember, you've got these I bands and A bands and they're responsible for voluntary movement and therefore you need um, ATP for muscle contraction and you need actin and myosin filaments to overlap and when you get this overlapping you get muscle contraction. So why is rhabdomyolysis a problem? So from first principles muscle needs lots of nutrients in order to be able to work properly so there's lots of stuff inside of muscle that if you get muscle breakdown, that then gets released into the blood. So a lot of the problems actually are not necessarily because of the muscle breakdown. It's because of the products that are released from the muscle, which is a critical thing about rhabdomyolysis. So it's not necessarily the muscle breakdown. It's the things that are normally contained within the muscle that get released into the blood. That is the problem. So I'm going to talk about a few components in the first bit of the podcast, we're not going to talk about a few components that are normally found in muscle and can cause problems when they're released into the extracellular fluid, into the blood. So myoglobin is probably the first one. So if you imagine with your bore curves, you have got a bore curve, so like a sinusoidal S-shaped curve for hemoglobin. Now, there is something that has a higher affinity for oxygen than hemoglobin, and that is myoglobin. So myoglobin is structurally similar, but there are differences to hemoglobin. So things like it's got one globulin unit rather than the four that you get in hemoglobin. So it binds iron and binds oxygen. So again, very similar to hemoglobin. Myoglobin, the myo meaning muscle, hemoglobin meaning blood. So myoglobin is predominantly found in your muscle tissue, in skeletal muscle, and hemoglobin is predominantly found in your blood. So we're going to talk about myoglobin. And if you ever think about why red meat is red, it's because of the myoglobin content. For those of you sitting exams, so that's MRCP, undergraduate exams, postgrad exams, you may be asked about fibre types. So I'm just going to briefly mention type 1 muscle fibres are the ones that are associated with endurance athletes. They contract quite slowly and they're aerobic fibres and they're the classical endurance fibres, so type 1. These contain quite a high concentration of myoglobin and a lot of mitochondria. Um, so, you know, Mo Farah, endurance athletes, you know, Paula Radcliffe's of days gone by. These are heavily capillarized because they have to be for gas exchange. 
They've got lots of mitochondria for energy production and they've got lots of, lots of myoglobin to hold on to oxygen. So the second thing that I'll talk about is creatine kinase. So creatine kinase is an enzyme. So it's an enzyme, if you like, that converts creatine from pho to phosphocreatine. So the difference between creatine and phosphocreatine is the addition of phosphate. Where do you get phosphate from? ATP. So you need ATP to form phosphocreatine from creatine. Okay, and this is a dynamic thing, because if you imagine, if your ATP levels are low, the phosphate goes back the other way to add to your ADP to form ATP. If you've got loads of ATP, then you use that ATP to donate a phosphate group to form phosphocreatine from creatine, okay? Creatine kinase is therefore an enzyme. It's associated with ATP regeneration. So creatine kinase does one of two things. So there's a forwards reaction and backwards reaction. You can form phosphocreatine from creatine and then going back the other way, you can actually donate a phosphate group from phosphocreatine to regenerate ATP. So if your ATP levels are low, that phosphate group gets transferred back the other way to add to the ADP to form ATP. If your ATP levels are high, then that phosphate group gets transferred to creatine to form phosphocreatine. So which way the reaction goes depends on how much ATP you have. Okay, so it's really important in muscle cells, creatine kinase, because it's involved in the storage of creatine phosphate, okay? Every contraction cycle of your muscle results in use of creatine phosphate, okay? Or phosphocreatine. So it's really, really important for muscle contraction, creatine kinase, and we'll talk about that later. Aldolase, briefly mention it, because it's probably something that not many people have heard of. Aldolase is really important, really important in skeletal muscle. And it's a glycolytic enzyme, so it helps you break down um, multiple products. But essentially what, what happens is you get the glycolytic breakdown of glucose to lactate. And it's quite important for that. Lactate dehydrogenase is another thing which helps convert your pyruvate to lactate. So all of these are really, really important. The things I'm going to touch on now is electrolytes in your muscle. So... Briefly, my brain's quite simple. If you were to measure the amount of sodium and the amount of potassium in your blood, your sodium might be between 135 and 145 and your potassium might be 4. Okay, so if we compare those two, you've got a lot more sodium in your blood than potassium because the numbers are a lot higher and the reference range is a lot higher. So my point being, potassium is mostly intracellular. So you have a lot of potassium inside of your muscle cells. We're now going to talk about rhabdomolysis. So to, to be accurate, rhabdomolysis is more a spectrum. So it can be an asymptomatic rise in your creatine kinase, or it can be multi-organ failure, and it can be anything between those two extremes. The first documented case of rhabdomolysis is in the Old Testament, um, in the Jewish exodus of Egypt where they ate lots of quail. So quail is a small game bird and quail eggs are a delicacy. Um, 
and quails eat a plant called hemlock and hemlock actually which now all makes sense with the benefit of hindsight hemlock that these quails eat has a karari like mechanism so there's a toxin in hemlock that has a karari like action karari is if you like a competitive inhibitor of acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction so if you can't if you prevent the binding of acetylcholine to the nicotinic receptors you get paralysis so karari can cause paralysis in the amount of concentration that it's found in um, the hemlock plant and therefore eating the quail they suffered from rhabdomyolysis if they had had a greater load of this they would have had paralysis okay and remember paralysis and rigidity is something that can contribute to rhabdomyolysis because you get muscle contraction but no relaxation muscle contraction leads to more intracellular calcium and leads to calcium dependent protease degradation so you break down muscle protein so that's that's an aside the tribe we're looking for is weakness myalgia and myoglobin in the urine myoglobin should never be in your urine and if it is rhabdomyolysis needs to be a consideration can sometimes give you tea-coloured urine, but it's far more important to look at the case as a whole. Creatine kinase, if you've got a CK above 5,000, you've had significant muscle injury. It could be 10,000, 15,000, 20,000, much higher than that. It can be 100,000 plus. So just to clarify a few terms, myopathy is a generic term uh, referring to disease of muscle. Pathy, pathology, of myomuscle, so any muscle disease. Myalgia is a muscle ache. Myositis are normally muscle symptoms that you get as a result of CK elevation or creating kinase going up. Rhabdomyolysis is a few things, muscle symptoms with an elevated creatine kinase, normally above 11 times the normal, and normally an elevated creatinine as well. So why am I now gonna talk briefly about physiology? This is what should happen normally in your muscle. You should normally get an action potential at your neuromuscular junction. You should then normally get acetylcholine release that binds to receptors and opens sodium channels leading to an action potential. This action potential should go to your T-tubules and we all know that T-tubule is really important for releasing calcium. Calcium then should bind to troponin and actually bind to your sarcolemma leading to actinomyosin so thick and thin filaments and muscle contraction that's what normally should happen so your normal physiology inside your muscle you want initially low sodium and low calcium and inside your muscle you want high potassium and it's part of this diff difference between the two that allows you to have an electrochemical gradient if you have lots of calcium which is positively charged sodium which is positively charged and potassium which is positively charged you would have a markedly deranged electrochemical gradient so what you do as a compromise is you have low sodium and low calcium and high potassium inside the muscle what happens is when you depolarize your muscle you let calcium in and for this process, this is energy dependent, active transport. So you need ATP. You need ATP.
If you have skeletal muscle damage, you get depletion of ATP. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? The sodium and the calcium moves into the muscle when we said normally inside the muscle, we like low sodium and low calcium. So we get sodium and calcium moving inside the muscle. This increases the amount of intracellular sodium and water follows. Oh, bad news. Swelling, edema, bad muscle environment. Because you've got lots of calcium, it's actually the movement in and out of the muscle cell that lets you contract and relax your muscles. If you let calcium in and it stays in and doesn't leave, you get prolonged muscle contraction that further depletes your ATP because muscle contraction is an ATP dependent process. You require energy for muscle contraction. Calcium also stimulates these calcium dependent proteases proteases are chemicals that break down proteins so they break down the proteins inside of your muscle so regardless what the cause is whether it's metabolic disorders if it's exercise if it's ischemia something like compartment syndrome we get low levels of atp in the muscle this leads to problems with our sodium potassium atpase pump mainly that sodium is inside the muscle that leads to water entering the muscle. We then get calcium transport problems, okay? And the calcium within the muscle goes up. This leads to mitochondrial dysfunction, activation of proteases, and you break down your muscles even further. So this is the perfect storm. What causes it? So maybe if you want to Pause the podcast for 10, 15 seconds. Think about some of the things that can cause rhabdomyolysis and we'll talk through them now. So I prefer to think of them in terms of physical causes and non-physical causes. So physical causes could be things like crush syndrome, so car accidents, uh, buildings falling down, etc. Then I would probably then go for exertion. So that is strenuous exercise, okay, normally. Common in people that have done Ironmans, marathons, etc. Muscle hypoxia. So that can be a thrombus. So you can have blockage of blood vessels or body temperature changes. And this is the one I'd like you to remember. So if your body temperature is too low or too high, you can get rhabdomyolysis. So if, you're, if you've got malignant hypothermia, that is normally as a result of um, anaesthetic agents, so it's genetically inherited, and then you've got neuroleptic malignant syndrome, okay, neuroleptic malig malignant syndrome that we'll talk about later on. Uh, things like heat stroke and actually hypothermia. Your non-physical causes are things like infections. They are electrolyte problems as well can cause it. Endocrine things um, to hypothyroidism can lead to myopathy. And then genetic things like mercadals that we've talked about before. Deficiency of um, LDH. And lots of other things as well, what well, we won't delve into. Medications-wise, there's lots of medications, but statins are quite important as potential causes. Remember to ask about recreational drugs. Cocaine, LSD, amphetamines can all cause it. Um, so why do statins cause it? The predominant thing that has changed over the past two years is we've basically got a better understanding about what potentially might cause it. And what we think actually may happen 
is that statins in susceptible individuals, because not every person on a statin gets myopathy or rhabdomolysis for that um, matter. We're looking probably at a sarcoplasmic reticulum that we said was the organelle of interest with calcium in muscles, leaking calcium. So we think it's actually a uh, sarcoplasmic reticulum calcium leak that can happen in statins. Those that are on statins, such risk factors are if you're above the age of 80 and on a statin, you increase your risk of rhabdomyolysis. They've got any other medical problems, problems with their liver or their kidneys and basically alcohol consumption or any other metabolic stressors. Cytochrome P450 inhibitors, exam alert, exam alert. Clarithromycin and statins for exams. Um, clarithromycin is a cytochrome P450 inhibitor. So clarithromycin and statins kind of give you double the risk because you're on the statins that increase your risk and cytochrome P450 inhibitors further increase your risk. Trauma. So this has been seen um, with earthquakes, tsunamis, etc., as well as uh, building collapses. So obviously you get muscle damage, you get trauma, you get ischemia as well. If it's if the limb is trapped under something, rhabdomolysis only happens once your acute compression is removed. So if your arm is trapped under a rock, you won't get rhabdomyolysis as a result of the trauma until you remove the compression and those toxic metabolites can transfer in the bloodstream. Just thought I'd um, talk about a case that I think was released earlier this year. So it was a 19-year-old man who had a full contact football practice in America for two and a half hours. He then went into an ice bath and had no signs of heat illness. And then he had leg cramps and ended up going to hospital. And he had it because his muscles were too cold. So I said cold or warm. So often used to be you know, you've got malignant hypothermia, your neuroleptic malignant syndrome, heat stroke. They're all associated with your temperature going up. Ice baths and other things, extreme cold temperatures have been shown to do it. And fundamentally, our muscles like working within a homeostatic range of temperature. And anything outside of that, your muscles aren't going to thank you for. So it shouldn't really come as a surprise from a homeostatic point of view that extremely cold temperatures are not good news for your muscles. Remember, your CK will be naturally elevated above um, normal when you do strenuous exercise, but not all patients that go for a long run or do endurance activities present to hospital with rhabdomyolysis. Again, the vast majority will never. Heat stroke. So we're going to talk about um, neuroleptic malignant syndrome as well. So neuroleptic malignant syndrome is associated with antipsychotic medications and can cause you rigidity, tremors, largely a dopamine-dependent reaction. So you get rigidity, tremor, and you... It's as a result of the rigidity and the tremor um, that you get a kind of sustained muscle contraction with your rigidity, and that leads to increased intracellular calcium, protease activation, and breakdown of skeletal muscle. Malignant hypothermia is slightly different. So this malignant hypothermia has got a genetic component, a very strong genetic component, and it's normally um, general anaesthesia for exams, and it leads to rigidity, fever, and lactic acidosis. Muscle ischemia can be seen in things like compartment syndrome. Infections, another cause, classically in exams, that's Legionella, 
and there's a few reasons why you could get rhabdomyolysis with infection. You can get tissue hypoxia, secondary to sepsis. You can get fevers, okay? Increased temperature can cause or contribute more correctly to rhabdomyolysis. And then rigors, sustained contractions, increased intracellular calcium protease activation. Symptoms, you can have myalgia, weakness, and T. colagurin. But again, only about 5% of patients will have the T. colagurin. So it's better to think about if you've got some with myalgia and weakness, rhabdomyosis is something you can consider. And we'll talk about the investigations later on. Because the colour of your urine in rhabdomyolysis is dependent upon the muscle mass of the patient. Higher the muscle mass and the more muscle insult, the darker the urine will be. The concentration of the urine and your glomerular function. So they're all variables that will mean that the same creatine kinase in two different people will result in massively different urine colours. So T-coloured urine, remember it for exams, but no, clinically it's of limited use. Tests that you can do are urea and electrolytes because you want to know what their renal function is like. Remember that we release potassium and other things like phosphate. So you want to get a bone profile as well because you can get problems with arrhythmias when these electrolytes start going high. Creating kinase you want to do as well. Your creatine kinase half-life is about one and a half days. So initially it seems very dramatically high and takes a while to drop. Liver function tests, there are liver pathologies, um, there are metabolic problems that can derange your liver function tests and lead to rhabdomyolysis. The complications of rhabdomyolysis are many, but I'm going to just tell you about a few of them. So the first one I'm gonna to talk to you about and the one that you need to remember for today is acute kidney injury. So this is due to one of two things. It can either be a direct effect of your myoglobin. Myoglobin is incredibly toxic to renal tubules. It blocks them up and hypovolemia, okay? And then that's normally treated with intravenous fluids. If their urinary pH is less than 6.5, you can alkalinize them with bicarbonate. If that doesn't work, hemodialysis. Compartment syndrome is something that can happen secondary to muscle ischemia and the increased amount of fluid within the muscle cells can lead to lysis as well. So remember I said to you, if your intramuscular or intracellular in this case, sodium is high, water follows by osmosis, and then what you get is you get swelling of the muscle and swelling of the muscle increases the pressure in the muscle fascial compartment. So actually, if you were to do the typical thing where you to measure pressures in there, your pressure would go up because of the fluid. So you can get compartment syndrome. Hypovolemia, um, and that can be because of fluid sequestration. Again, the fluid goes to the muscles and not in other places. Hypo and hypercalcemia. Normally, what happens is you get hypocalcemia initially because you get the calcium going into the muscle and out of the blood which is what we talked about, increased intracellular calcium. So that is normally a consideration straight away. Normally then afterwards, um, you get hypercalcemia because your kidneys can't clear it because renal dysfunction is what you're mainly concerned about with rhabdo. So if your kidneys can't clear calcium, it goes up in the blood 
and the damaged muscles, the calcium actually passes out of the damaged muscles later on. So actually normally recommend not giving calcium for early hypocalcemia unless they've got risk factors for cardiac arrhythmias or neurological problems. Phosphate will go up because phosphate is intracellular. So when you break open your muscles as part of lysis, your phosphate in your blood goes up and hyperkalemia. Really important thing about hyperkalemia and rhabdo. So damaged muscles, potassium's mainly intracellular, sodium's mainly extracellular. So when you break open your muscles, the potassium gets released from damaged muscles. And if you've got an acute kidney injury, you can't clear potassium. So you've got two reasons. Um, DIC, disseminated intravascular coagulation, can happen because of thromboplastin release. So we normally treat these patients with stopping the offending agent if they're on a statin, stop it. Um, some paediatric patients are on statins and on other medications, so we stop those. Regardless of what the underlying cause is, one of the most important core things to do is to prevent and or treat acute kidney injury. So fluid management is really, really important. So we tend to give paediatric patients two to three litres per metre squared per day, which is what we call hyperhydration. If the urine pH is less than 6.5, you tend to give them urinary alkalinization that helps things, definitely helps things if you alkalinize the urine. We normally would then do a blood gas because we want your plasma pH to be less than 7.5. So fluids, alkalinization, stop the offending medication, and that usually works for most patients. If they've got compartment syndrome, then I might need a fasciotomy. But genuinely speaking, most of these patients don't need hemodialysis. They need intravenous fluids, stop the offending medication, and treat any abnormal blood test results. So we try and leave the shock, um, relieve it by replacing fluids and correction of their electrolyte and acid base balance. We alkalinize the urine and that's to protect the kidneys against the nephrotoxic effects of uric acid and myoglobin. If you need to, we can protect the integrity of muscles by fasciotomy and we can um, correct the acidosis and the hyperkalemia and that leads to better um, arterial function as well by um, treating the acidosis and the hyperkalemia. So just to summarise what we talked about, we talked about what rhabdomyolysis is, we've talked about some of the causes, um, and we talked about the management. We talked about some of the complications and how to deal with it. So in exams, high creatine kinase, someone often with a crush injury or excessive exercise and renal impairment, you've got to be thinking rhabdomyolysis. The management is stopping the offending medication, fluids, um, dealing with the acidosis, alkalizing the urine, and dealing with the electrolyte abnormalities, very, proportionately speaking, very few patients need hemodialysis. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>